when the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Max Lucado describes the day that he took his daughter Jenna to preschool for the very first time. And very fatherly, he said, if you get lonely or afraid, you tell your teacher to call me. I'll come get you. Okay, Daddy. And then she acted like a great big girl and asked if she could listen to the tape with her kids' music. As he drove her to school, he wished that he could assemble all the hundreds of teachers, instructors, coaches, and tutors she would have over the next 18 years and warn them, this is no normal student. This is Max's child. You be careful with her. As he parked and turned off the engine, the the big girl became small again. It was the voice of a very little girl that broke the silence. Daddy, I don't want to get out. He looked at her. The eyes that had been bright with excitement were now fearful. The lips that had been singing were now trembling. And he fought a Herculean urge to grant her request and just go home. Everything within him wanted to say, okay, let's get out of here. But he knew better. It was time. He knew it was right, and he knew that she would be fine. But he never imagined that it could be so hard to say, Honey, you'll be all right. Come on, I'll give you a piggyback ride. And she was all right. One step into the classroom and the cat of curiosity pounced on her. He walked away. She didn't even wave. He gave her up, but not much. He left her in a safe place with safe people, and in three hours she would be home and they'd have lunch together. But as Max was walking back to his truck, a familiar verse seized his heart. It was part of our scripture reading, and it's just amazing. In Romans 8, 31 and 32, It was a passage he'd studied before. Leaving his daughter took it from black and white to technicolor reality. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God was not releasing Jesus into a safe environment with a compassionate grandmotherly teacher that would stand ready to wipe away his tears. God released Jesus into a hostile arena with a despotic Herod who would murder hundreds of little boys in attempts to kill the newborn king, and to cruel soldiers who would whip his back and turn it into raw meat. God was not taking Jesus to preschool where he would make friends, laugh, draw pictures, and read storybooks. When God the Father said goodbye to Jesus, he knew he would be spat upon, laughed at, and tortured. What was the Father thinking at that moment when he hugged Jesus and said, Goodbye, my son. And then he watched Jesus literally hurl himself from the power and authority of the king of the universe to a free fall to earth as a completely defenseless human embryo. And I wonder, what was Jesus thinking? Did he have second thoughts about accepting this mission? Did he for just a moment say to the father, Daddy, I don't want to do this. We are told about his struggle in Gethsemane, but nothing would happen to Jesus on this earth that would take him by surprise. Jesus knew where he was going, and he knew what he was going to have to do. The risk involved and the pain. There must have been a struggle for him to leave the Father's side and become a human baby. We just sang a song about Jesus being above all and taking the fall. This is what it's describing. When he chose to come from, go from heaven to earth, what a fall he was willing to take. The father could not be saying, stay, stay safe, my son. When I say goodbye to my kids, I'll always say, stay safe and happy. He, the father could not say that to Jesus. He knew that Jesus would not even be remotely safe on this planet. Every eye of the enemy's forces was fixed on taking Jesus down. He wasn't just coming to earth to be born. He was coming to earth to die. The father was sending his beloved son to a filthy, hostile, unsavory place. And Jesus, who had been an omnipotent, unconfined spirit, was by choice taking on a human body. Not a grown human body, but the complete vulnerability of a baby. It blows my mind what he did. Would the father miss Jesus in those 33 years that it took for him to grow up in Nazareth and breathe our air and walk our sod? They had enjoyed the complete unified intimacy that the Trinity enjoyed, closer than any beloved spouse 
or best friend. In John 1.18, the phrase that reads in English, who was at the Father's side, means literally reclining next. That they reclined together side by side and rested. They thoroughly enjoyed the company of one another, and it would be 33 years till they would see each other face to face. Now I'm missing my daughter Amy, who went to Argentina and she's not coming home for Christmas. And I miss her. I miss her a lot. John 1, 1 tells us that the word was with God. What was it like to be with God? The Bible tells us in his presence is the fullness of joy and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. So if you're in God's presence, there is joy, beauty, peace, and security. It wasn't just that Jesus was leaving a beautiful place. He was leaving his father, the one who loved him and that he loved intensely, the one whose presence gave him joy. And that he gave up as he traded being with God for being with us. Doesn't sound like a very good trade at all. Sometimes when I'm going to preach about a text, I let my sanctified imagination run. Will you indulge me to do that a little bit? On Thursday this week, I wondered, I wonder how old Jesus was when he remembered heaven. How old was he when those memories started coming through? Was he eating barley bread and dried fish when he remembered the banqueting table and what the food had been like? Was he slogging through the winter rain and mud of the the dirt streets of Nazareth when he remembered the streets of gold? Were his arms weary of carrying lumber for his father Joseph's carpenter shop when he remembered that in heaven there had been 10,000 times 10,000 angels who would do anything he asked like that. Did Jesus ever get homesick? Homesick for heaven. And did he ever, as a human, second-guess his choice to come to this earth? Our call to worship this morning was taken from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Of all the passages of the Bible, there are two or three that are high, high, high Mount Everest height type peaks, and this is one of them. Because it tells in just a few verses the complete picture of who Jesus was, who he became, what he did, and what the results were. All in just those few verses. And Paul begins this passage by challenging us to change our minds. He says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Meditate on Jesus' attitude and invite the Holy Spirit to help you think like he did. And then Paul continued by quoting a passage that his readers already recognized. 
Verses 6 through 11 are believed to be an early Christian hymn or maybe even a confession of faith that they recited every single week as they came together to worship. The Philippians knew these words already by heart. But the context here in the book of Philippians is found in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Paul knew that there were a couple ladies in Philippi who were fighting with each other. And he wanted them and the whole church around them to remember, to act and think like Jesus. Eudia and Syntyche were obviously leaders in the church. We see that in verse 3. They were in a big enough fight that the word of it had reached Paul, who was 800 miles away in Rome. Oh, I hope my fights don't ever go that far. There was no Facebook or Gmail to send Paul this bad news that these women are fighting with each other. But their fight was big enough that he had heard about it. And so here in Philippians 2, Paul is not composing a theological treatise. He's pleading with these believers, these converts, to live a life like Jesus, a life of love and self-forgetfulness. In verse 4, he said, not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you to the things of others. In other words, care more about the other person than you care about yourself. So Paul was exhorting these bickering leaders, and maybe the whole church that was taking sides, to think like Jesus. So how did Jesus think? The passage is going to tell us. Verse 7 begins by telling us who Jesus is. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The Greek word here is morphe, which describes the qualities that makes a thing what it is. This wasn't that Jesus just looked like God or he acted like God. There's another Greek word for that, schema. Instead, morphe means that Jesus possessed the unique qualities that made God God. What qualities are those? Things like omnipotence, all power, omniscience, all-knowing, omnipresence, the ability to be everywhere at once, and immortality, no beginning or end. And so that's who Jesus was in heaven before the story even began. But the next phrase is also important. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus already had equality with God. He didn't have to reach for it because he had been God just as much as the Father was from the very beginning. From eternity, he had exactly the same substance, character, and being as God the Father. One thing is clear here. Jesus was not just a good man, a prophet, or a teacher. 
Jesus was God himself. Some teach that this idea was that Jesus is the divine son of God didn't develop until about the third century after his death. But this text tells us something different because Paul, in AD 31, started quoting this and the people already knew it. AD 61, they already believed. The early church accepted the fact that Jesus was the divine son of God. Absolute truth. But there was something that Jesus valued even more than his place beside the Father, reclining next to him on the throne of the universe. Jesus valued us. He took the fall and thought of us above all. Thought of you and me rather than his own comfort and status. He willingly left his place on the throne to become empty, not grasping, not clinging to his right to honor as the equal with God. And so Jesus walked on this earth and he served and he was never confused about who he was. He always knew it. He knew exactly who he was. Consider these claims that he made in John 8. First of all, he said, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. In 8.23, he said, I'm from above. I'm not from this world. And then in 8.58, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, these Jews were the last people on earth that would ever let a human claim to be God. They were monotheist. That was what was their thing that they said every day. The Lord, the Lord, he is one. They said it every single day. If a man came along and made the claim to be God, they would not believe it. They would instead scrutinize every word, every action, every single thing he did. And sure enough, that's what we see in the Gospels, that he was completely scrutinized and watched every single step of the way. And what the Gospels tell us that Jesus had divine power. Praise God for that. They also tell us that he had moral integrity, that he had superhuman wisdom, and a kind of love that had never been seen on earth before. His life is what substantiated his claim that he was God himself. And then he died and rose again, and that was just frosting on the cake. So, what difference does it make to you and I today, December 2, 2017, that Jesus was the divine Son of God? How should our life be any different because we know this? How should we think differently because this is the truth? If Jesus is truly God, we need to be a whole lot more optimistic than we are, right? Ephesians 3.17 tells us that this divine power has now come to live in our hearts through faith and is available to us. Are we accessing it? We better be if we believe it. And Romans 8.38 and 39 
tells us that we don't have to be afraid of anything, absolutely anything on this earth, because nothing can separate us from the love of this Jesus who is divine. This truth should make us buoyant and unsinkable and positive and full of faith and hope constantly because our Savior was the divine Son of God. We need to believe that he is who he said he was and that he can do everything that he says he can do for us, personally, for us. And the only possible response, if we really understand Jesus' identity, is to trust him and to hope of what he's going to do in our lives. You know, no one who ever met Jesus personally had just a moderate reaction. People either loved him and followed him or hated him and rejected him. There was no sitting on the fence when you came face to face with Jesus. And as average American Christians, even Adventist Christians, sometimes we just like Jesus. I'm sorry, that is not enough. If we only like him, but we do not love him, honor him, and worship him, and surrender to him, it's because we don't know who he is. Liking him won't get us where we need to be. We have to love him. We have to worship him. If he wasn't God, he was either a megomaniac or a liar. But if he was God, he commands authority over every single aspect of our lives. And he deserves it because of what he gave to us. Augustine makes an interesting point in his book, The City of God. He said this fact that we had a trinity, the three-in-one father Son and Spirit, even before creation, indicates that God always was love because God always could love the other parts of the Trinity. They never had to create to have their own needs met because they loved each other. When God created the angels and later he created mankind, he did so because he wanted to love us, not because he needed us to love him. He never did it to get anything back for himself. And our scripture reading this morning makes that clear. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Was it to be served and to be loved? Or was it to serve and give his life a ransom for many? The Son came from earth, from heaven to earth, to serve and to save, but never to use us. He doesn't treat us that way. So part of having the mind of Christ is beginning to serve without worrying about what we get out of it. So many times we only will serve if it feels good, if it feels mutually beneficial, if I can feel better because I've helped someone, then I might do it. But sometimes when we serve, the people we're trying to help are resistant, right? Sometimes they're surly and ungrateful, and they don't like what we're doing. 
What if we're continually feeling snubbed in our service? What if we're unable to establish control over people's behavior? And what if we begin to blame those who are criticizing us? Paul would answer this challenge, which happens to everyone who even attempts to be a servant, by saying, have this mind in you, which which was in Christ Jesus. Don't be about serving for what you can get out of it. Sure, you're healthier. Sure, you'll live longer. Sure, you're better connected and you're happier. You're less depressed if you serve. All of those things are true. But some days it doesn't feel like it. Some days it just feels like really super hard work. That's when we need the mind of Christ. That's when we need to decide to think like Jesus. The answer is not to withdraw resign, or quit. Instead, we need to talk to him and ask Jesus what he thinks about the situation. The answer is to go to that Trinitarian love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and soak in that unconditionality, love that doesn't have to have a reason, before we go out to serve. And we need to think a whole lot more often about how and why Jesus served. Because after we have let Jesus meet our needs, then we can go out and serve without condemning either ourselves or anyone else. Once our needs are met and our cup is full, and we're settled into who we are in Christ, that we're his children, then we can serve like he did, and really not until. If we serve needy, we're always going to impose a little bit of that upon the people we're trying to help. And when we fail to soak in God's love for us, we can get grumpy. We can get critical. We can get impatient, just like Euodio and Syntyche. Verse 7 tells us that Jesus made himself nothing. The Greek word here, akinosin, comes from the Greek word kenosis, the root, which means empty. The same word was described when the disciples were pulling up their nets and there wasn't a single fish. So Jesus emptied himself. He literally poured himself out till there was nothing left. He emptied himself of position and significance. How did he do this? The next phrase tells us in verse 7, second half of verse 7, that he took on the very nature of a servant by becoming a human being. Human likeness is that word morphe again. So he did not empty himself by getting rid of his divine nature. He emptied himself by taking on human nature and becoming both human and divine, at the same time. He put on flesh and bones. He just voluntarily veiled his divine nature. He still had it, but he refused. He self-limited and refused to use it for his own behalf. The word morphe in verse 6, that he was in very nature God, is in the continuous tense, 
which means he never stopped being God when he came to earth. He didn't just become a man. He was still God all the way through. At the incarnation, being God, now he becomes human as well, together. This is so important. Do you understand why it's so important? Because he never stopped being God. A man could not have saved us. Fully human, fully divine. But that divine nature was servant nature. And so what he was showing us when he became a servant was what the heart of the father is like as well. The father was just as much servant as son. the son was. They both were serving mankind. Jesus' whole life was characterized by serving, by forgetting himself and giving to others. But that word, ekenosen, seems to favor a one-time definite act, which happened on that moment when he left heaven and came to earth as just a tiny, tiny little speck of divine DNA. Amazing. This one voluntary act of self-emptying happened at the incarnation, that moment that he took on human flesh. And we know that it was voluntary because in this passage we keep finding the word himself. Nobody did this to Jesus. Jesus did it himself. He chose it. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself. Now, how many of us do that? I mean, you don't want to pray, humble me, because you know what? God will. To humble, to be humble, it has to be a choice. It's something we have to choose ourselves. No one forced Jesus. He chose the path because he thought of us. Above all, this is the backstory of the incarnation and of the birth of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate for a month. And it's told in the phrase, He was in very nature God. This phrase refers to his pre existent state. Yes, he was in heaven before he came to earth, but also who he was. He was king of the universe. He was not just an ordinary angel, he was not just Joe Blow up there. He was God himself who came and became human and walked this earth. He was still God when he died, and he was still God when he rose again and ascended to heaven, and he was crowned by the angels as their triumphant king. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, tells us why this is important. Now, we know why it's important that he's divine. This is why it's important that he became human, because now he gets us. He completely understands. He shares in our humanity, and he knows what it's like to have a headache or tired back or tired feet because he's walked a long way. He knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty and exhausted. He understands Hebrews 2 says that he shared in our humanity and was made like us, his brothers and sisters. How? 
It says, in every way. Because he understands us, he's able to be a high priest to make atonement for our sins. And I love verse 18. This is like the best. It says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help us when we get tempted too. That's what he accomplished when he took on flesh. Jesus understands. He understands what it's like to have a friend betray you. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to face death and to be rejected. Hebrews 4.15 tells us because he became human, he's able to sympathize with us. He gets us. And he was tempted just like we are in every way, only with one great big difference. It says, yet without sin. He had to face everything we do, but he never, ever blew it. Therefore, he's able to not only understand us, but to save us. He didn't just become a human. He became a servant. He could have picked any family in human history at any time. And why he picked a peasant girl who was a teenager and was not married seems just almost over the top. He didn't come as a prince in a palace. Instead, he came to that stable that was stinky and germy. It was by choice. This is exactly the opposite of Lucifer, who started the whole problem in the first place. He was a once noble archangel who was corrupted by pride. Lucifer was not God, but he saw equality with God as something to be grasped, and he grasped for it. And he decided he would use deception and force and cruelty to to get his way and to have his way promulgated on this earth. Exactly the opposite of Jesus. And so in coming and doing this, he was reversing what Lucifer had done. What Jesus did was also the exact opposite of sinful human nature. We are not equal with God. And yet you and I sometimes grasp after equality with God. You say, oh, no, I don't ever do that. Here's how we do it. When you say, I know what the Bible teaches, but as soon as you say that, you're saying, I'm smarter than God. I'm in control of my own life. Let me do it my way. Not your way, my way. And you know when you say, not your will, but mine be done. That's pretty scary. We desperately want to be kings and queens of our own little kingdoms, right? In our homes, in the church, in the community. We don't want to be served. We want to be celebrated. We want to be served. We want everything to go our own way. When we serve, we expect it to go our way. After all, we've served so desperately that we're willing to fight for it. We use deceit, slander, and force if necessary, like Euodio and Syntyche, and completely unlike Jesus. And so we have a choice. Are we going to think like him 
are we going to choose to be like him? This passage isn't over until we get to the end of the story in the last three verses. Jesus' death on the cross is not the end. Jesus came from heaven to earth and he descended into greatness. He redefined what greatness was. So let's look at these last verses. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, how many knees bow? Every single knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Could this have ever happened if he wasn't willing to descend? We would never have the chance to worship him and to profess him and proclaim him if he hadn't taken the fall first. Jesus found his name by losing it. He found his identity through laying it aside, and he veiled it to become a servant. He found it by obeying and surrendering. He emptied himself of doing things in his own strength and power and glory, and he lived in dependence, not on his own divinity, but of the Father. So, this passage, it says he's fully God. Let that change the way you think. It also says he's fully human. Let that change the way you think. And he became a servant. Let that change the way you think. So I've decided what I want to give Jesus for Christmas this year. I want his beautiful mind. His servant's mind all of it to become my mind. I want it to permeate how I think, how I act, and how I live. I want to be a servant, willing to do whatever he asks of me, just like Jesus. That's what he wants. Oh, Jesus, we want to learn to think like you. We want to learn to live like you and we want to learn to serve like you. Come and live in our hearts and show us how to do this. And thank you, Jesus, for that amazing thing you did when you left heaven. May this season, may we remember over and over again who you are and what you have done. And may your praise be on our lips. May every knee bow and every tongue confess that truly you are Lord of all. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.